This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Peering into the shadows, where the truth often hides. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. Natasha Rosewood stays with us. Natasha, first, before we proceed, uh, give us a a website and and some contact information if people want to get a hold of you. Yes, thank you, Richard. My website is natasharosewood.com. And my email is natasha at natasharosewood.com. And clients can book quantum healing, past life regression, psychic reading, ghost busting, and intuitive coaching through the website. Now, uh, just as the the last break was, uh, or the last segment was winding down, you mentioned that, that 80% of our dreams are precognitive. Let's talk about that. How do we know 80% are precognitive? Is there data? Well, according to Tony Cresp, who wrote a book on dream interpretation, um, he says that 75 to 80% of our dreams are precognitive. So, actually, I started uh, working with my dreams in earnest, and I started to experience that uh, what I was dreaming, a lot of that was I was dreaming of uh, places and people and uh, conversational sequences a week or two weeks before they actually occurred. So I'm not going to say yes, definitively, that 80% of our dreams are precognitive, but it's a very, very high percentage. And this to me makes sense because if we are intuitive psychic beings, we are already sensing and feeling what's coming down the pipe. We're like really animals in the jungle, sensing with our... um, whatever it is that animals have, uh, but we, we've, it's like we've got antennae coming out of our paws and we're picking up on all the energy that's flying around, all the electromagnetic waves, all the vibrations that are flying around, and we're picking up um, on like energy. So whatever frequency we're vibrating at, we're probably going to pick up on a similar wave. So it's like tuning into your TV and if you like CNN and you're skipping forward to see what's going to be on next week, I think that's what we've got going on. And I think deja vu is something where we've dreamed a sequence and then we see it in the actual physical reality. Oh, that's interesting. Um, it, it, this idea that, you know, our dreams are precognitive, the best way, I guess, for us to test that, and, and and I've always meant to do this and I've never gotten around to it, is to start keeping a dream journal, like keep track of your dreams so that you can actually test, you know, to see what happens. Well, that's what I did. And I, I had at least, um, I think over a two-week period, I had at least three dreams um, where they came true. The building I walked into the week later, the conversation I had with a roommate two weeks later, and it was spooky. (laughs) And it's the same feeling that I feel when I see an event in a client's life and they come back and I I see it in front of me, uh, unfolding in front of me. It's a feeling of deja vu. It's that same feeling uh, of having seen it in another dimension and then seeing it in the physical realm. 
Are are precognitive dreams the same as visions? Um, not entirely. Like precognitive, I think, can be just our personal lives, our little sequences that we go through. Um, but precognitive dreams absolutely can be visions as well. Uh, I used to have a girlfriend of, uh, who was also a flight attendant, and she used to say, oh, yes, I think there's going to be a plane crash with 53 people on board. And it's like, no, I don't want to know. Don't tell me, please. Um, and she had a few that she saw before they actually happened. And I had vision, a conscious vision of um, 9-11 back in eight, 1986. I saw that there was going to be, I thought it was a bomb on New York. And this was while I was kind of sitting looking out the window and it just came to me and I felt like the tops of the buildings, I couldn't understand it because I saw the tops of the buildings on fire. And I thought, well, it's not a conventional bomb and it's not an atomic bomb, but I knew that it had some kind of Arabic connection and that um, it was just very localized in New York. So I think that's the question I would like to ask, Richard, is why do some people have visions about airplane crashes or some people have visions about car crashes or whatever else it is? Why is it a specific thing? And the only thing I can think of is that like energy attracts like energy. So because my girlfriend was a flight attendant, she thought about that a lot. And that's why she attracted those visions. Ah, right, right. And, and can, in the, in the, in the same way that you can teach people to become more intuitive, can you teach people to have precognitive dreams? Or is there anything that we can do to enhance our ability to have precognitive dreams? Some sort of a, a ritual before sleep? Well, I think you said it. I think taking your dreams seriously, a lot of people say, oh, it's just a crazy dream. Well, our dreams are like a little jigsaw puzzle and all the pieces have been thrown up in the air and uh, not put together. So we think they're fragmented. So if you do write a dream journal and you give more focus and attention to your dreams, you tell yourself just before you go to sleep at night, I'm remembering my dreams when I wake up in the morning. Some people who want to be more serious can actually set an alarm during the REM, the rapid eye movement phase between, I think it's between two and four in the morning and wake yourself up and write down the dream at that time. The more you get into your dreams, the more the, more, the easier it becomes to remember them. And the more you start working with your own dream symbols, the much more meaning you'll get out of them. As well, let's talk a little bit about uh, dream symbols because you you analyze dreams. I do. Now, are there universal uh, symbols in dreams, or are they all individual? Well, there are archetypal sing- symbols. So Carl Jung was very big on um, uh, archetypal symbols. I think he actually coined the phrase. So things like um, a, if you dream of a baby, you might be not necessarily getting pregnant, but you might be dreaming of starting a new project or having a new life. Um, your house, if you dream of a house, that often represents the outer self or how you feel about you at the time. So if, in your, if, if you're in a big old messy house that's dirty and you're not feeling very good about yourself or your body or your, your immediate vicinity, your immediate environment. Um, but what I encourage people to do is learn the archetypal symbols because they're definitely very helpful. But also write down your own um, 
dream dictionary because Freud would say that snakes are you're dreaming about sex but some people love snakes some people hate snakes and they can mean different things to different people so it's good to take the archetypal symbol and then your own symbol what does that mean to you and just put those together in a kind of a picture like a jigsaw puzzle and just see what leaps out at you and give the name give the dream a name because sometimes when you give the dream a title, it's the title of it is the main meaning of it. So if you dream that you're walking through a graveyard and all the graves start opening up, God forbid, and uh, you would call it the graveyard. Right, right. Yeah, right. So, uh, and just remember, even if you remember just one thing, write that thing down and then sometimes dreams come back to us later on and keep adding to that. Leave it in the dream journal for a week, two weeks, a month, and then go back. And once you read it back, once you've had some distance from the dream, it might just really become very clear to you what that was about. And if it was precognitive, that event might have happened. For years, I I dreamt of, occasionally it still happens, not very often, but for there was a period of time when I would have dreams where I was losing my teeth. I'd be talking and all of a sudden, my teeth would just start falling out. What is that about? Well, that's supposed to be a very common dream, Richard, and it's about losing face. It's about the fear of losing face or feeling embarrassed about something. You know, some people dream about standing up naked in front of a crowd and mm-hmm. giving a speech. That's that's a very similar one. But it's the fear of not having, not being good enough. You know, we all have this subconscious belief that we're not good enough in some way or another. And so when we're feeling particularly vulnerable to that and we're presented with a challenge, maybe we have to give a presentation or we're buying getting a getting a mortgage for our house or, you know, doing a radio show, that that those dreams can kind of come to the surface and just tell us that it's just telling us that we need to really re empower ourselves. When you dream of a dead relative, uh, is that a metaphor or are, are they actually coming to visit you? Well, there's different levels of that. Uh, What I say to my clients is how real was that? Because some people from the spirit realm will use the dream state as a way to communicate with their loved ones who are still living. Sometimes it's a phone call. Sometimes they'll dream that they're in the same room. Um, I lost a fiance and, and I could tell that I would dream about him sometimes. And then sometimes he was in my dream. And I felt at that time he was coming to communicate me communicate with me and at that time those dreams were far more lucid they were they felt really real and i think you can tell from the quality of the dream whether you're just dreaming about the person or whether they're actually showing up to give you a message we'll take another time out come back more of my conversation with natasha rosewood don't go away it is time to redefine reality The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Natasha Rosewood stays with us. I want to talk about your mediumship. How does it work for you? Do you you hear the voice of the spirit? Do you see dead people? Do you receive mental images? How does it work? I think a bit of everything. I would say that I see the person as they present themselves to me in as much a physical form as they can. Um, in my mind's eye, and I'll often hear 
um, their voice or words or names. Uh, sometimes I'll get a smell like a tobacco smell or a perfume smell. Uh, they'll often show me something that identifies them with the person that I'm reading. Um, so they might say, you know, if I say I've got rosemary sitting in my um who's come to me for a reading and I'll say, Oh, I've got this older lady here and she feels like grandmother energy. And she's saying the name, um, cook, cookie coo or something like that. Was, was that your, uh, was that her nickname for you when you were a child? So there'll be something that's very personal that can be identified, but not always. Um, spirits show up, um, in all, always shapes and forms sometimes my client doesn't recognize who i'm talking about at the time then they might come back later and say oh my god natasha and now i know who that is uh sometimes spirits who are lost souls who have attached themselves to my clients um don't belong to them they're not they don't have a family com- connection they're not their spirit guides or angels you know we'll we'll sit and talk about that and those spirits have attached to my clients because they like them or there's something similar that they need to experience together or learn from one another. Um, when I do group, you know, I, I do like a John Edwards things and I go around the group, I just feel like sometimes the person, the spirit is standing on the on kind of by the left shoulder of the person I'm going to be reading and giving me the information. You and so that's very useful. Okay. You mentioned yeah. John Edward and I, I don't want to put you on the spot here if you don't feel comfortable answering this, but let's face it, there are a lot of frauds out there. Uh, I mean, what are, you, what are your thoughts on someone like John Edward or uh, the Long Island medium? When you watch them work, what do you think? Well, <laughs> um, when I first saw John Edward, I really liked him and what some other people said to me, oh, is he for real? And when I'm talking with spirit, because they're vibrating at a high frequency, I'm often like, blah, 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 blah. you know, the, the, the energy gets really fast. And I noticed that with him too. And I, I feel um, that I don't know if he uses other aids to help him with what he does, but I feel when I saw him years ago, when he first started doing his show, I felt that was for real. Um, I think, uh, Teresa, I've watched her a couple of times. What I did enjoy about Teresa was her compassion. Um, I felt that she was quite compassionate and where some, I have encountered some psychics and spirit mediums who are not very kind in the delivery of their information. And that's where I had the issue. I said, you can be a great psychic, but if you're not compassionate that's where i have the issue and when i've watched her work it it makes sense to me because i pick up very very similar very very similar stuff it's like if uh you know there's been an upset um i just had a story the other day where um a parent had died and there was a contest over the will and her will had not been respected and she told me she was literally hopping mad and i saw her jumping up and down and I heard the words hopping mad. And so I communicated that to the, uh, the daughter who had tried to keep her mother's wishes, tried to obey her mother's wishes. And so I just passed on the message that this needs to be healed in this family. And the mother's also upset because it's caused such a rift in the family. So, um, you know, when I watch those mediums, I am looking 
for their their verbiage and and what they're picking up and not saying it has to be exactly like I do it at all, but um, it feels very familiar to me what they're doing. Do you ever do you ever see full on apparitions of these people? I have not as yet, but in my mind's eye, they may as well be. I mean, I don't see them showing up in the physical in my office, but I do feel them being very strong. Uh, <laughs> I was sitting here one day and reading a client and there's like, I said, oh, there's a Viking that just flew in and it was like, whoosh. And it, it's just a feeling of strong energy. And sometimes they may as well be in the physical because sometimes they're very, very lively. And I have to say there's some dead people who are a lot livelier than some alive people. <laughs> <laughs> You know, they've got more energy going on. It's fantastic. And uh, there's a lovely story in my second book. I called it the Dead People Party, where I was. I often go to a person's uh, client's house and she invites her girlfriends and there's six or seven people. And every single person that came in had a spirit that came in and there was some story to go with it. It was quite the night. And one of these spirits was so uh, vital he died in a motorcycle accident, but he was so alive. It was like, whoa. And we were just giggling and laughing. And it took us a while for him to kind of leave the room. You know, I said, okay, you've had your talk now. You've got to go. <laughs> we have to go. We'll, we'll, uh, we'll be right back. More stories from Natasha Rosewood when we continue. <laughs> Providing the evidence and letting you draw your own conclusions. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett on Zoomer Radio. Natasha Rosewood stays with us. Natasha, before we proceed, uh, give us your contact info and your website again. So my website is natasharosewood.com and my email is natasha at natasharosewood.com. And if anybody would like to explore their intuitive ability, um, they can find my books through my website or on Amazon. I'd love to hear from you. You grew up in England. Uh, were any of your ancestors, relatives, part of the spiritualist church? Not the spiritualist church. My parents were actually humanists, and they didn't believe in life after death, if you can believe that. But I do know that my mother, as well as being psycho, she was psychic, <laughs> and my grandmother was very <laughs> in tune as well. So um, I think it was definitely in the family. But like I say, I feel like... Uh, those of us who are kind of extra gifted, if you want to call it that, have come through some kind of trauma or very precarious upbringing. And I think anybody that's gone through wars and um, hunger and poverty and uh, dysfunctional families, you know, or abusive families, it's going to definitely have a more highly attuned psychic ability than those that didn't. And I think that was a case in our family. Mm. Um, yeah, I've always been uh, captivated by spirit photography, especially from the, the Victorian era, the 1920s, people like William Crooks and, and um, uh, Ada Dean and William Mumler. Um, what, 
it, particularly the, the you know these manifestation mediums with ectoplasm, seem, you know, coming and pouring out of their mouth or some part of their body. What do you what do you what is your take on the spirit photography? Do you think manifestation mediumship is legit? I absolutely think anything is possible, Richard, with energy, any manifestation of any kind of energy. And I find it interesting because in those days, I think there was a belief that if you were going to conjure up spirit, it had to have some kind of physical form, i.e. ectoplasm or something like that. So I think they were at that time wanting to prove things. But now, I think because we're moving into this lighter frequency and vibration, and intuition is kind of a leading edge word, I think, and so is quantum healing, that we're more uh, willing to believe in just our senses, sensing things. So, uh, but you know, I have friends who take photographs and there's nothing on the photograph. And when the photograph is developed, there's something there. So I think we're surrounded by lots of mysteries that aren't available to the human eye that absolutely do exist. So I would say my answer to your question is yes, I do think it's real. What do you think ectoplasm is? Well, to me, it's a manifestation of a lower frequency, definitely. Um, to me, I, I always associate ectoplasm with kind of uh, seances of, of a lower vibration. Um, you, we don't need, like, you know, when I want to com- commune with spirit, and it's going to be a good spirit, and it's coming from a place of love and integrity, it's a very, very light vibration. It's a very beautiful vibration. Anything that's kind of spirit and in the physical has to be lower because it's come down and it's literally become matter. It's become, it's, it's manifested itself in matter. And anything of the phys- in the physical realm is lower frequency. So to me, it's, it's a kind of just a demonstration of there's this kind of low, low vibration uh, manifestation there that has its own intention. I'm not sure what it is, but depends on who's inviting it in as well and what their intention is for it. What are some of the more subtle uh, indicators that, that you may have uh, a spirit in your home, a ghost in your home? Uh, yeah, uh, that's a good one. Um I tend to think that there are spirits in all our homes and they're everywhere, but it doesn't mean to say that there are dead relatives coming back to visit or they, they won't leave. Um, but I think, you know, the spirits exist in a dimension just slightly um, above us and amongst us. So they're not very far away a lot of the time. But if you do have a spirit that really wants to get your attention, I've had one in my home in England and she was a little old lady who she would slam doors um, I'd hear moaning and groaning. The lights would go on and off. Lights, the electrics are very popular because it's easy for spirit to manipulate electricity because they are electrical. And um, uh, sometimes the radio go on, you know, the TV will go on by itself. I always say to people, when people call me and say, I've got a presence in my home and I want it to go, I'll always kind of interview them to find out what is the uh, ferocity of the spirit because if if there's anger there and it's accelerating 
um, then it's often somebody that's really very unhappy and needs out and wants help to the other side or to resolve some kind of issue. But if it's just a gentle spirit who, you know, maybe um, blows on your face every now and then or moves your keys from one room to another and is just having fun with you, then you can sense the lightness of the energy as well. So it depends on uh, the the vibration. If I go into a home and it's really heavy and thick and it's like, oh, um, then I know that there's dense, dense uh, spirit energy in there that probably is kind of dark and will need some help being removed. Does that answer your question? It does. It does. And okay. I, was, I was reading on your website about, you know, potential signs of uh, a ghost's a ghostly presence. And I was taken aback a little bit because the last couple of days, uh, for no particular reason, I have just been exhausted. I, I mean, I'm busy, but I was driving my, my boys to, uh, they take Greek dancing. I was, I was driving them and I, I all of a sudden I had this overwhelming feeling that I was going to fall asleep at the wheel. I w- and I had to really focus to get there. And this has been going on like the last couple of days. All of a sudden this wave comes over me okay. and I see on your website where, uh, exhaustion can be a sign. Yes. Well, that can be an attachment. So it can be a spirit that um, is, this is very different from a possession. I want to be very clear on that. Uh, sometimes an attachment is a spirit that's kind of lingering, that wants to be back in the physical and is using your body in, in a way just to have an experience. He's not going to do anything really bad with you like, like a possession would, but um, it, the first sign can be exhaustion, fatigue, kind of you feel like you have a low-grade flu all the time, and it can come and go because the spirit will come and go out of your body sometimes. So when it's with you, it, it's kind of really sucking on your energy somewhat. It's using your life force to to be there. Um, I'm not saying that's exactly what's going on with you, Richard, but it might be kind of interesting if you know we, we can do a separate session on this or if you know somebody locally that can just kind of check you out and see if there is, um, I want to say, a male energy with you. Um, have you had anybody that has passed away in the last three months that wasn't terribly old? The last three months. Yeah. Oh, boy. Um, n- nothing is coming to me. I mean, I had, I had so many relatives pass. My father was one of 10 children. They're all gone. Uh, you know, I have, I have uh, so many relatives on the other side, but the last three months. Uh, I want to say possible. this wasn't, I wasn't, want to say this wasn't a relative and it's somebody that you could have met through your work. Um, and he could have been a spirit that was hanging around. Maybe you were doing a show and he was interested and it feels like he's just, he kind of likes you and he wants to hang with you. Hmm. <laughs> but, you know, he's not where he's meant to be. So he shouldn't be in your body. He should be somewhere. <laughs> he should be on the other side. Tell him to go home. Yeah. All Tell right. him to go home. <laughs> All right. Well, we have to go home. Uh, it's been a, a delight, Natasha. Uh, again, the website, natasharosewood.com. And uh, people can get a hold of you through the website as well as uh, order your – can they order your books directly through the website? Yes, they can because it takes them through the link to Amazon. All right. Mostly true ghost stories. Arg, I think I'm psychic. And Arg, I thought you were dead. Yes. 
A great pleasure. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you, Richard. Good night. Good night. Okay, that's it for me. My thanks to Owen Wolf and Ryan White. Back next week with ufologists Victor Vigiani and Grant Cameron. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed, and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. There's smoke. There's The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. Natasha Rosewood is here and she's, uh, well, among other things, uh, she's telling us about her uh, adventures in Libya. So you were having a dinner with this uh, German gentleman in his apartment in Libya, knock at the door, two Libyan officials, I guess, show up. How did, what did they want? Well, we went ashore and that was a scary thing. So my girlfriend and I had picked up a little Arabic and we were trying to explain that uh, why we were there in Libya. They were very curious about that. And we tried to explain we were working for Libyan Arab Airlines, which actually in those days was essentially owned by Gaddafi. And... Um, they wanted to know which hotel we were staying at and why we were there in that apartment with men because in Libya at that time, a man and a woman, unless you were married, weren't allowed to be in the same room together. And if you were found, sometimes they would do different things. They would send you home. They would exile you to Malta. They would throw you in jail. You weren't really sure of what would happen. So that experience was very unnerving, but we made it back to our hotel and nothing, no harm was done for which I am eternally grateful and there were no repercussions from that. So in the moment, it was one of those times when you think oh my gosh, you know, we're going to disappear and nobody's going to know what happened to us. Right, right. Uh, meanwhile, were your psychic, develop, your psychic abilities developing while you were there? I, um, I think I've always... I call it having my ear to the ground, Richard. I feel like I'm, I always have my ear to the ground. I'm always listening to energy, paying attention to people, um, being on alert. I think many psychics have come out of dysfunctional or dangerous situations or traumas. And that's where they've learned to hone their instincts. And I think I did the same thing. So I would say I was very much on alert. So the night after that event, for example, um, a German friend, another German friend said, oh, come out to our German camp and let's go drink some beer. And I went, no, I don't think so. <laughs> I think I'm just going to stay where I am. Thank you very much. And so whether that was my fear or my intuition, I just felt like, no, I just needed to be really uh, very cautious after that. And I was, and I got home safe. So Do you, I think it served me well. Right, right. And and um, when did your psychic ability then really come to the fore? When you were you were uh, well, you you mentioned a reading that you did that ended up being sort of spot on. Uh, but when did that really start to, to to come to the to the fore? I think when I came to Canada, 
And after I started, I felt a sense of freedom being in Canada because um, although England, you know, people say, oh, you're an English psychic, you must be really good. Um, at that time, spirituality was definitely under the radar. Um, psychics were kind of, you know, an underground movement. But when I came to Canada in the early 80s, it was seemed to be um, burgeoning. Spirituality, there were psychics everywhere. And I think I felt a sense of permission to then be psychic. And then because I did, and I started doing more readings, um, and these people were coming back to me and saying, oh my God, Natasha, what you told me came true. And I went, it did? Okay, that's interesting. Um, you know, I was still telling myself even then that it was still a coincidence. Um, but it just really, I kept getting more and more validation from people that I read at the time or later on. Um, I would say in my mid-30s, um, I, by, by the time I was 35, I was knew I had something and it was really big and I did want to, I put up my shingle, but then I started attracting very strange people and I went, this is not what I want. So I closed it down and I did that a few times. I opened it up and closed it down and I hadn't had any training. I hadn't had any formal training and the only person I went to see was a psychic researcher, Frank I forget his name, but he's in my first book. And he just told me how I needed to really close down my energy wasn't when I wasn't doing readings or in my psychic mode and just to be and to ground myself and to protect myself. And that was such valuable advice because I went on from there to uh, feel okay with it. It was, wasn't until I was in my early 40s and I was living in Whistler that I really said, okay, I'll do this. And how does it work for you it was it i mean it started off i think you mentioned palmistry yes. uh, and but but when you started to develop your psychic abilities uh to a certain level was it still palmistry or how did you work how did did you need a a, a a personal item from someone or how did it work well actually rich this story goes back to libya because and there's a story in my first book about this where i'm sitting at the back of the plane and we did a lot of sitting around waiting for people and passengers and flight deck to show up and I read uh, one of my girlfriends and she just stuck a palm out and she said you read palms don't you and I said okay and up until then I just sensed and I'd read the lines but in her palm I saw a picture like a mini movie and I remember jumping up and down saying I can see I can see you know like I'd suddenly got my eyesight back and from that point on I started to when I took the hand it's kind of a more of a kinesthetic sense of their emotions, depression or joy or whatever that was, and then also seeing pictures to go with those emotions. So it was like watching a movie or clips of a movie for me. Hmm. And the lines then became secondary, and they still are to this day. When I see a client now and I do a lot of phone readings for people all over the world, I just tune into the voice now. So I've really honed my intuitiveness, if you like. And then when I see the client in person, I will read the palm as well because it's very interesting to them. Um, so it comes to me, I think, A, from their six levels of consciousness and their spirit guides and angels and my spirit guides and angels. So I'm getting information coming in from different levels of consciousness, different dimensions. And I can just tell by the feeling of it if it's right or if it's not right. Do you believe we're all psychic? 
I believe we can all be psychic. Yes, I believe we're all intuitive. And I think it's like being an artist or being able to sing. I think we could all sing, some of us very badly, but if we get training or we give ourselves permission to sing well, I think we can be trained to do it. And it's almost like it's there. And once we give ourselves permission, we unleash it and then it's out of the bag and then we can hone it and train it. So it works for us well. Does it have anything to do with the, the pineal gland? I, I hear this all the time. Open up, open up I, your third eye and all that. Yeah, I have heard that too. But the strange thing for me is I don't really feel anything in the, in my, uh, in my third eye. Now, for me, it's a full body. Um, I use my body to sense and I think our spirits speak to us through our bodies. Our spirits tell us that's why we get sick because our spirits are telling us our spirits are out of whack. So we get dis-ease in our body. Um, and I really listen to all of the information that's coming through me. I almost feel like I put myself in the other person's physical being and in their, you know, their soul, their spirit, their subconscious, their ego, their alpha and their higher consciousness. So I'm kind of in there and I'm taking a good walk around and feeling everything. To me, it's about all the brain waves. Um, again, in the first book, I describe what I experience when I read somebody and that what their mind looks like to me or their energy. So the soul is on the bottom of, it's like a big pyramid. Soul's on the bottom, then is the spirit of the person they are in this lifetime and their personality, the gifts and the challenges. Then the subconscious data, which is everything they've experienced from past lives and in this lifetime, plus their current belief systems, which are really driving the show here in this lifetime. Above that, the alpha or the what I call the in-between. That's where the intu intuitive is strongest, I feel. And then in the uh, ego state, you know, we call that the B brain because that's so tiny and that's the one that really separates um, ourselves from everything else. And then the higher self, which is the being that we're in the process of becoming. So I feel like I'm kind of flicking, if you like, through brainwaves or levels of consciousness or dimensions, whatever you want to call that, and picking up on all these different frequencies and seeing what is being projected into the future. So I like to call myself like a weather forecaster. Based on current conditions today, this is probably what's going to show up next week or 10 years from now. Mm. But like the weather forecaster... I can be wrong on the timing. The thing might still happen, but it might be Wednesday instead of Thursday. That's pretty good. All right, we'll take a time out. Uh, we'll carry on into the next hour. Natasha Rosewood stays with us. Live from Toronto, Canada, Earth, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett on Zoomer Radio. Thanks for inviting me into your home, long-haul truck, RV, camper, taxi. Your parents' well-appointed rec room with the simulated wood paneling, electric fireplace, and the painting of the dogs playing poker. Your loft, that greasy spoon just off the interstate, and your cabin in the woods. Happy Canadian Thanksgiving, and I hope you didn't load up on too much tryptophan and you're too tired to listen to this show. Actually, that's a myth. Uh, there's not enough tryptophan in Turkey to make you drowsy, but... Overeating and then flopping out on the uh, sofa for four hours of football can make you a little dopey. I want to remind you once again to get on up to my website, strangeplanet.ca. 
If you haven't been there in a while, it's been completely redesigned. There are some cool comic book style illustrations of me, courtesy of artist illustrator Rick Forgas. And I want you to take a minute and fill in your email address once you're prompted to do so. And once you're registered, you'll receive my new monthly newsletter, which launches later this month. Plus, you'll have a chance to win some really cool Strange Planet merchandise like t-shirts, mugs, tote bags, phone cases, hoodies, etc. So please, once you go to the website, strangeplanet.ca, a little box will pop up. Just enter your email address and you'll get the newsletter once a month in your inbox for free. I think you're really going to enjoy it. This hour, Natasha Rosewood stays with us to discuss her amazing psychic adventures. Natasha is a gifted psychic, spiritual healer, medium, past life regression therapist, Ghostbuster, and she's the author of Ah, I Think I'm Psychic, and Ah, I Thought You Were Dead, and Mostly True Ghost Stories. I want to move things over to uh, to another uh, area, and that's reincarnation. And you 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 talk about among your past lives, you were a gypsy. Tell me about tell me about your life as a gypsy. Well, I just feel that I and. In this lifetime, I've always wanted to move around, and I actually, thanks to my father, I ended up going to eight schools, so it felt very comfortable for me to do that, and then when I grew up, I needed to travel, and I was never really, uh, could ever settle in one place, and I used to think that was a bit of a curse, actually, but now it's made my life very interesting, uh, plus the palmistry thing, I mean, it just all fit and I've always had this fascination with Russia as well, and I wonder if I was a Russian gypsy in my past life. Um, I've got a little bit of a story, if I've got some time oh, here, yes. Richard. Yes. Uh, okay, my, my husband and I went to Calgary, and I used to do uh, talks out of uh, Divine Mind in southeast Calgary, a beautiful bookstore, and these two ladies came in. First, and I think the I was doing a talk on manifestation, and one of these ladies said she was a psychic, and she looked at Lorne and I, and she said, "Oh, you two were together in a past life, and I see you in this wagon, and you were sitting in the back of the wagon, and you were the you were the fortune teller, and he was the driver, and he would take you anywhere you wanted to go." And I said, "Well, he's doing that in this lifetime." But the funny thing is, she said, oh, yeah, he's got this white hair, and it's got a little ponytail at the back, and you used to just always see his ponytail. And when I first met my husband, I said to him, which was out of character for me too, I said, why don't you grow your hair and wear it in a ponytail? It would really suit you. And he looked at me like I had three heads. He said, no, I'm not doing that. <laughs> and it was really interesting. I went, wow. So maybe – and it, when we met, we felt right from the get-go so comfortable, and we both travel. People are always saying, are you home, Natasha, or are you going away again? Where are you going to be? So we're gypsies still to this day, which I find very interesting. Now, did you, though, confirm this previous life through a, a past life regression, or was it just a hunch? I didn't I, I didn't confirm that one. I've done about 15 other regressions Uh where I have gone back to other lifetimes. And so I was actually this very short little man down in Buenos Aires, um, sorry, in Argentina, in the forest of Argentina in the 700s. And I was a chief of a tribe and I was a kindly man. But somebody had come and warned me that uh, the tribe was going to be ambushed and I ignored them 
And then the tribe were ambushed and most of them died. And so actually I felt a huge guilt about that, which I brought forward to this lifetime. And because of that, I had kind of, um, what do I want to say, resisted becoming this psychic. I think that was part of my resistance because I didn't want to have the responsibility of other people's lives in my hands. And I had didn't feel confident in it. And so I felt like I come back to this lifetime to heal that and get over it and just do the work anyway. And so after experiencing that previous life as this this tribal chief in what is now Argentina, did, mm-hmm. did, did that experience remove all of the guilt? I think it made me understand it. It made a lot, it helped me make sense of why certain things had happened in my life. And plus the other past lives I've done as well. I think I've been in positions of power in my past life. I've had a lot of lifetimes as a male and I've been wealthy and I've been very um, uncompassionate. So I think what what I learned from those lifetimes was that this time I had to come back and really uh, be compassionate. And it's almost like right use of will, like having the power but using it wisely. So I've been very, very cautious in how I do use my abilities and make sure that I first do no harm. That's my first rule of thumb. Do you do past life regression therapy for other people? I certainly do. And and that for me, Richard, is kind of the lead into the quantum healing because I've been doing it now probably for about 15, 20 years. And I would say 15 years. And I've had great success. And there was one lady, for example, she actually came to me for a reading. She wasn't looking for a past life regression in the first instance. And I asked her, do you have, I feel like a, a horrible pain in the right hip. And psychically, I saw this arrow sticking out of a hip. And I said, she said, oh, yes, I've had, I've had this pain a while. I said, how far does it go back? She said, as far as I can remember. And for me, if somebody has a lifelong issue, it's definitely something they, they came in with from a past life. So I said, I feel this is a past life thing and we can remove the arrow if you'd be willing to do a past life regression. So she came two days later, an hour and a half later, we went through this story where she had actually betrayed her own tribe and caused or organized an ambush on them. And then when it started happening, she started to feel like really guilty and she didn't want it to happen. And she felt terrible remorse and she got this arrow in the hip and the arrow represented her guilt. So what we did while she was still in the regression, we gathered all the spirits that would have died in that place at that time, put them in a circle and we turned the arrow into a peace pipe and we passed it around and said, everybody is forgiven, all is all is learnt, all the gifts are taken from this experience, all is now forgiven. So all the spirits can now move forward in peace. And then she came out of this regression and two days later, her girlfriend called and said, I don't know what you did to my friend, Natasha, but she's leaping off cliffs and going for hikes with her husband and she's got no pain at all. Remarkable. So, it can instant it's an instant it can be an instant shift if the person is ready to release it instantly how many regressions have you done oh gosh oh i want to say thousands i would probably say on average i do maybe 
for a month. Um, I don't know what that adds up to, but maybe more. Um, I, I've done group regressions as well sometimes. Um, but, you know, I always find that they are very dynamic because a person can go to a counselor, and I love counselors and I love psychologists, don't get me wrong here, but unless that counselor or psychologist is willing to go beyond this life, they can't access the root of the pain. And what past lives do is allow me or the client allows me uh, to lead them to a place where they then see their own lifetimes. I'm not telling them what they're seeing. They're telling me like they're watching an old movie in which they've been the star. And I get them to go forward to a significant event that had a major impact on them. And I ask them what's happening. And when they tell me we look at the the tragedy and the trauma of it, but then while they're still in that state, in that, um, I want to say alpha state, they might be in a deeper state than that sometimes, that we turn it into what was the gift of that. And why, if you were the movie director of that movie, why did you create that event? Why did you create that cast of characters? What was your motivation in having that event happen? What was the gift in it? So once they get the gift and they realize that they created it, they are then re-empowered because they're not victims of it. They're actually um, instigators of it. And when they come back out and then we do a debriefing after the past life and make sure that they understand everything and who was who was from this lifetime could have been in that past lifetime and still working out the healing, um, then they're empowered they're validated for their pain. Um, they've forgiven a lot of their guilt. They've forgiven the other person. They've understood the reason for the event. They've taken the gift, and they're empowered to move forward with it. And it just dissolves the, any resistance or pain that's going on in the spirit, soul, or the body. What's the most, let's say, shocking incident you've witnessed during a past life regression? Oh, gosh. Um it's in my second book, I believe, and it was this lady who came to me, and I had met her before, and she had such a look of fierce anger in her eyes. I asked her if she could relate to where that came from, and she said no, and I said, would you be interested in doing a past life regression? When we did the regression, it turned out that she had been the daughter of a king in Sweden, somewhere in Scandinavia, she said Sweden, and that uh, he had punished her for having an affair with a friend of his, and she was down in the basement of that castle where all these rats were, and she was absolutely phobic about rats. And she was chained to this wall, and I wasn't sure whether and even she wasn't sure whether the rats, she imagined the rats eating her, like attacking her. Oh, good Lord. She, I know. Or whether she was just afraid of that. But sometimes fear and the imagination of the event can be the same thing. It can produce the same level of fear and adrenaline. And when I'm in a regression with people, they're telling me what they're saying. But psychically, I'm also with them. So I'm seeing it as well. I'm experiencing it as well. So it can be very, very brutal sometimes. And I'm, I'm not even going to tell you uh, what what her, her real 
punishment was for because I just can't, <laughs> I don't want that to be in anybody's minds. But suffice it to say, you know, we've come a long way. There's still a lot of very brutal people on the planet, absolutely. But we've come a long way in civilizing ourselves. Um, but a lot of these past life aggressions go back to these very brutal times where there was absolutely no compassion. It was almost sadistic. So, yeah, do you it think, wasn't very pleasant. <laughs> do, you, do you believe that, that most phobias that people have, you mentioned rats, are most yes. phobias rooted in a, in a previous life experience? They can be, and they can be from be from this. They can be associated with the trauma in this lifetime as well. So I don't cut out anything. I just let the client guide me as to when and where what happened. But I I think often, Richard, we can get the healing if we know what are the right questions to ask of ourselves, and to go deep within and then listen to the answers. Um, so I think what happens when people come to me, I'm kind of holding their hand as they go through this experience and I'm guiding them through through the trauma and out the other side and finishing off the trauma. I have a, it's not, I don't know, it's not a, a phobia that I have. It's just, um, I have great discomfort when I see someone's fingers sort of being bent backwards, even, and my kids now, they tease and taunt me with this, where they'll, they'll show me, you know, their, their fingers sort of bending backwards. And I don't, my, my wife is always saying, the next time you speak with somebody, a uh, past life regression therapist or someone, a psychic, ask them what that might be about. Any idea? I mean, Well, you know what I, yeah, I do get something instantly, actually, Richard. I want to say... I get torture. Um, I want to say in a London castle, I don't know if it was a Tower of London, I'm not going to say it was that, but it feels like you were tortured. And have you ever had any sense of being living through the Spanish Inquisition? No, no. Okay, because it feels like they, they were trying to get information out of you. Hmm. And... Um, I think you were, I think you knew some things, but you didn't know everything they were asking. And so that was kind of very scary for you because you couldn't have given them what they wanted anyway. And I'm not too sure if your hands were, your fingers were broken in that way. Um, it feels like you, they could have been. Um, but like I say, the fear of something happened or the imagination of something happened can be the same as, as, as if it happened to you. And the memory can trick you that way. Right, right. Sometimes. But um, does that does that resonate at all with you? Well, um, I'll be, I mean, I'll, I'll be honest. I've, and I've always put my biases on the table when I'm talking about this. I, I don't personally subscribe to reincarnation. I mean, I could be wrong okay. and I could be in for a rude awakening, but I've witnessed... Uh, my, my old TV show, we did some past life regression, uh, work on live, not live, but on, in studio and on the, on the, on the TV show. And I've witnessed a number of them and they are, I mean, something is definitely going on there. The, the, the people that are experiencing whatever it is, uh, a, a shared memory, the, their, uh, their own past life. I don't know what, what to tell you, but it, it's, it seems very genuine to me. Um, however, um, yeah, for yeah, me, and I know, I, I, 
yeah, sorry, I, I can jump in there. And I do say this sometimes to my clients. You know, maybe I'm crazy and there's no such thing as past lives. But when I ask your mind a question when you're in a certain relaxed state and your mind spews up this picture, maybe it's an allegory or a metaphor or something else that happened. Just like somebody might be afraid of uh, birds, but really what they're afraid of, it triggers a childhood memory of um, there being a fire in, in, their, in their farm and all the birds flew out of the, the window. Right. right, right. So the mind is, like I say, it the fear can really um, have you manufacture memories. But often, what I get out of the past life regression is a result for the client. So it doesn't really matter whether it was past life or they made it up, or you know. And I do say to clients, it's okay. You know, even if you think you're making it up, your mind's showing you something that's going to help you to pass through this tremendous wall of fear and and heal what's gone on before for you. It's going to heal an emotion that's currently causing you to not be happy and to block your success or to never let you have a good relationship with this particular person. So it doesn't really matter in that sense, but when I'm in there and I'm seeing it, I'm feeling it, it's very, very real to me. And so, and I don't tell the client what I'm seeing. I let them tell me. And I just go, yeah, that's exactly what I got. And it's kind of interesting because I'll say to the client, um, you know, you're seven years old. Where are you? You know, look at your skin. What color, what are you wearing? And um, they'll tell me. And I say, are you alone or with other people? And they say, oh, I'm alone. And I say, well, you know, just take another look. Are you really alone? You know, or, because I can feel other people around them. So I'm, I'm having the experience with them. So it's two of us having the same experience without talking about it. Amazing. Amazing. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I, I agree. I think the, I think the brain is an, is a movie making uh, machine and whether, as you say, whether it is a, a metaphor that's being produced by the mind or whether it's real, the point is it, it, it seems to work. And I've heard this time and time again from past life regression therapists. It doesn't matter if you, if you believe in reincarnation, just going through the process, however it works, it, it, it works. Yes. Yes. And, and quickly too quickly <laughs> right right i always joke you know you're going to put the psychoanalysts out of work i mean people uh, they're in in analysis for for decades sometimes i know well i want to put i i always joke about this i want to put myself out of work as a psychic because in past life aggressions and quantum healing i'm actually asking the client to choose the reality that they would prefer for themselves, not what I tell them. But when they do come to me for a psychic reading, I am able to see this other dimension and other rea- reality, you know, like I say, looking down the vibrations <laughs> into the future and seeing what they're creating with their mind, saying this is possible. And when clients don't believe that that's possible, I say, well, you need to get into that frequency, that same frequency, so that you can, because like attracts like in physics, we have to be in the same frequency if we want to have that experience of that joy. So what I'm doing in the quantum healing is taking people from their lower kind of uh, disempowered 
frequency to a much higher one where they can have that more positive experience of themselves. We've got about 40 seconds here. I just want to get your take on deja vu and whether deja vu might be related to reincarnation. It could be, but I don't think so. I, I think it could be the interruption of the feed to the brain. It could be. It could be a dream sequence. I think it's something we dreamed before because 80% of our dreams are precognitive. Oh, that's interesting. 80%. Yes. Well, yes. Let's, there's something that we can uh, pick up on uh, when we come back. Natasha Rosewood, my guest, and we'll be right back. Don't go away. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in, weary traveler. Hang your cloak on a peg. Grab a stool and come gather around the fire. There are stories to be told, and you are among friends. Happy Canadian Thanksgiving, and I hope you enjoyed your turkey and your pumpkin pie and your American football. The Psychic Adventures of Natasha Rose Wood is coming up towards the bottom of the hour. Natasha joins us from Kelowna, British Columbia, to tell us about her remarkable life as a psychic, spiritual healer, medium, past life regression therapist, and ghostbuster. Coming up this half hour, a new regular feature on the program, the first Sunday of every month, we welcome David John Oates the discoverer of reverse speech to the show, and he'll play some more amazing reverse speech clips. He's also coming to Toronto this month, and I'll tell you more about that in a moment. Owen Wolf is my technical producer. Ryan White is my live stream producer. However, no live stream tonight because of the holiday. Uh, this broadcast, however, will make its way up to the YouTube channel in a few days. The YouTube channel is Strange Planet. And don't forget to hit that red sub button. And don't forget to visit the website, strangeplanet.ca. A little box will pop up asking you for your email. Be sure to fill that out, and then you'll receive my free newsletter, which launches this month. And once you register, you qualify for a monthly draw for some great Strange Planet merch, t-shirts, mugs, etc., from my Strange Planet shop. All right, time to hear some reverse speech. David John Oates is the founder and developer of reverse speech technologies. He was the first person to ever document speech reversals in human speech in 1983 and has worked extensively since then on research and development as well as maintaining a therapeutic and consulting practice. He's the author of It's Only a Metaphor. Reverse Speech, A New Theory About Language, Reverse Speech, Voices from the Unconscious, and Beyond Backward Masking. And together with Christian Dicadieu, he is the co-host of the podcast Reverse Speech Radio. 
New episodes drop every Thursday, and you can listen and subscribe at reversespeechradio.libson.com. David John Oates, welcome back to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? I'm doing very well, Richard. Thank you for having me back on, as always. And you're getting ready to uh, depart. You're going to be appearing at uh-huh. the Greek Orthodox Church on uh, Donlins Avenue. It's the Metamorphosis Greek Orthodox Church, 40 uh-huh. Donlins Avenue, October 26th. That's a Saturday. This is a free event. It's a, it's a reverse speech seminar. You're going to be taking the stage from 2 to 4 p.m., your co-host, Christian Dikadir from Reverse Speech Radio, will be uh, conducting a workshop from 11 to 1, and then I have the great uh, pleasure of introducing you at 2 o'clock. What are you going to be talking about? Fantastic. Oh, well, I'll cover, I'll cover uh, ob- obviously, the basics of reverse speech, but I thought I might look at some of the uh, current political situation, uh, which is hotting up, and I'm getting lots of requests for reversals on what's happening in America right now. So I'm going to be uh, hunkering down, uh, looking at all the, all the characters and uh, finding out what's really going on in, underneath all this impeachment. Well, not just the impeachment, but there's a whole bunch of hot political things going on in America right now. I know. It just, it's the, the pace of the news is dizzying. Not only yeah. in the United States, but of course here in Canada, we're in the midst of an election campaign as well. Oh, yes, uh, so, uh, rev- I don't know if you have any reversals on Justin Trudeau, but those would be interesting. Uh, you know, I do. I don't have them ready for the show today, but I will have them ready for my lecture. Perfect. When I lecture in Toronto. Perfect. Okay? All right. Again, let me just remind people that's Saturday, October the 26th, and that's at uh, Metamorphosis Greek Orthodox Church, 40 Donlins Avenue here in Toronto, just steps from the Donlins subway station. So easy to get to. It's a free event. Uh, a workshop on reverse speech from 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. with Christian Dicadieu. And then I'll be there introducing David John Oates from 2 to 4 p.m. And as he's just described, he's going to be uh, coming with a trunk load or a truckload of uh, great reversals. All right. So what do you want to do tonight? What do you want to talk about? Okay, well, I thought I might cover some of the initial theoretical development of reverse speech way back 30 years ago when I, uh, when I really first started developing the theory. And um, one of the first things that uh, my original research partner, Greg Albrecht, and myself, who has sadly since passed away, but one of the first things that Greg and I first noticed was what we called the principle of complementarity. That is, the forwards and the reverse relate to each other. And there's this direct relationship between the forwards and reverse dialogue. Sometimes it'll be confirming the forwards. Sometimes it'll be contradictory to the forwards. But there will always be this 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 contextual relationship. For example, uh, let me find a... Uh, classic example of a congruent reversal. Okay, so here's, uh, here's uh, Bill Clinton talking about the need to go after Osama bin Laden. There is more um, agreement than at first it appears about the necessity to push this thing through to the end. Now he's talking about Osama bin Laden and he says backwards, let's shoot for the assassin. Let's shoot for the assassin. Let's shoot for the assassin. 
So he's talking about pushing this thing forwards and backwards. We are tapping into his inner thoughts, and he does. He intends to shoot for the assassin. So it's a congruent reversal. He's thinking the same thing as he's saying forwards. So, uh, so we call that a congruent, congruent reversal. A rare and moment look- of honesty from uh, Slick Willie. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, well, then, okay, okay, so then let's find an incongruent reversal on uh, Slick Willie. Oh, here's a funny one. This is in his uh, 96 uh, debate uh, with Bob Dole, and he was running for a second re-election, for, for re-election. So, and they're talking about the income tax. Senator Dole, speaking of your tax plan, do you still think that's a good idea, the 15% across the board tax cut? Oh, yes, and you'll be eligible. And... Uh, <laughs> So will, the, Me too. so will the former president. Yes. That's good. So. I need it. Well, the people need it. That's the point. So he says, I need it. In other words, I need the tax cut. I need it. But backwards, he says, we do not. Did he not? Did he not? So we have a contradiction. Did he not? No, he says one thing forward, I need it. But backwards, we do not. Considering all the wealth that the Clintons have accrued over the years, I'm <laughs> sure they sure they don't mind a few little tax jabs here and then. Right, those reversals are so clear. Uh, it's so it's so evident. Yeah, yeah. Look, I've been saying this for years. I mean, uh, yeah, look, look. One of the one of the criticisms of reverse speech, of course, is that you know this is all pareidolia. You know, where you're only uh, we're only hearing this because you want us to hear it, but it, it, it's just not the case. Like you said, these are so clear, and they just jump out of the gibberish. And uh, um, can you get uh, can you play one and see if I can without you telling me what the reversal is oh, to sure. see if I can hear it. All right. Okay. So here's here's Joe Biden, and he's uh, he's appraising our troops. You are the most capable warriors in the history of the world. There has never, 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 never been a fighting force as capable as you are. Okay, this is a fairly easy one, I think. So here it is at three speeds. Here's chicken. Here's chicken. Here's chicken. Oh my! He didn't say that. Your chicken. Yeah, that's exactly oh, what he said. Dear Lord. <laughs> that's you got it spot on. Absolutely. Oh. Absolutely. So that knocks a paradolia argument on its head right there, okay? I mean, if I was just auto suggesting this then okay, here, let's throw another one at you. This is this is Bob Dole again, and he's resigning from the Senate. You do not lay claim to the office you hold. It lays claim to you. Your obligation is to bring to it the gifts you can of labor and honesty, and then to depart with grace. Okay, here it is, backwards. It's an honor. It's an honor. It's an honor. But what do you hear? It's an honor, clearly. It's an honor. So there's a congruency. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, it's a congruent reversal. He's saying the same thing backwards as he's saying forwards. So I, th- I threw a couple of easy ones at you there. Uh, uh, here, see if you can get this one on Hillary Clinton. Okay, we're, we're, we're just throwing them out here. This is what I call an internal command. And this is, she's talking to herself. So here's the, here's the forwards. I have spent a very long time, my entire adult life, 
looking for ways to even the odds to help people have a chance to get ahead. Okay, here it is backwards. A little bit harder. What did you hear? Oh, be quiet. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah, exactly correct. Oh, be quiet. She's talking to herself there? Yeah, she did. yeah, this is her spirit talking to her and telling her, well, you shut up. <laughs> <laughs> Even her spirit doesn't want to hear her anymore. Yeah, exactly right. Exactly right. And now we're looking at, she may be, she may be running again. I don't know whether she will or not, but she's all over the news right now. I mean, she's everywhere. Right. Well, it looks like Joe Biden is uh, going to get knocked out. Uh, yeah. And yeah, she sees maybe she has a, a now a, a path to the nomination. I love it when though she says, "I can beat him again, again." Again, <laughs> I know, I know, I know where these people get their get their thinking from. Um, uh, look, I'm sitting back and I'm watching this, and I'm I'm just I'm just shaking my head in disbelief at, at the shenanigans in America. It's incredible. Anyway, it's, a, it's a circus. Now, do you find it, that if someone uh, is a dishonest person, yes. then are the majority of their reversals? Uh, a, a lie, or I mean, or do honest people also lie during their reversals? Uh, interesting question. Um, well, yes, we all lie. <laughs> I mean, to say we don't lie is to be in total denial. You know, yes, we all lie. We all lie to ourselves. We all lie to others. It's unfortunately it's part of our human nature. However, that being said. There are more congruent reversal. Well, particularly when I work with my clients, there's more congruent reversal than you might than you might realise. Um, uh, uh, so I'm just contradicting what I said earlier. But m- the majority of people I work with are basically honest. Okay. However, they are in not in contact with some of their deeper psychological desires that are driving them. And in that case, they can be incongruent. And um, uh, a lot of my work is in finding these incongruities. Let me see if I can pull one out real quick that's incongruent. Um, I know I've got one here in this folder I'm looking at. Um, oh, yeah, here we go. Here's an incong- here, here is one of these incongruent. Uh, where a businessman is talking about his business, okay, and he's being basically honest, but we have an incongruent reversal that is uh, pointing to hidden another behavioural drive. So here's the forwards. This is an Australian accent. I hope you can get it. Okay, so on that question, what needs to happen to keep it moving? Uh, what do I need to do to keep it moving? I need to stay on top of my uh, on top of my office work. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Yeah, keeping up with my quotes and getting them out on time, and my following up on time. Okay, so he's speaking quite positively. Forwards, I've got to stay on top of my office work. But backwards, he says, my ass again, and ass is lack of self-respect. My ass again, I am an idiot. So that's obviously an unconscious desire that he's not aware of. Actually, when I played in the rehearsal, I said, do you, do you, do you call yourself an idiot? And, and he said, well, yes, I do, all the time. <laughs> wow. Wow. 
so that so that's an, obviously an incongruent reversal, but it's an unconscious drive um, that needs to be fixed. Right. He's not being deceptive when he's speaking no. forward. He's not being deceptive. Uh, whereas in these cases with politicians, obviously they are, there's a, there's an element of deception there. De- who, who lies more in your experience after examining countless reversals over the years? Who lies more, criminals or politicians? Oh, what an interesting question. Oh dear. <laughs> um, <laughs> oh heavens. Um, I don't even know how to answer that. I would have to say politicians. I mean, a lot of the a lot of the criminals I've got on file, at least being honest about their crimes, <laughs> you know, uh, like Ted Bundy. I mean, I got some amazing confessions from Ted Bundy, but he's confessing forwards too in some of them as well. Right, you know? right. So, uh, so there's a level of congruity there, but oh, gee, I've got some doozies on politicians. Um, I should pull up one on uh, uh, some of them I can't play. Um, I've got a really funny one on George Bush. Let me see if I can pull this one up real quick. This is uh, this is a George W. Bush and uh, and a George Bush Jr. Of course, and uh, he's uh, talking about looking forward to working with the Senate. So here we go. Today, the federal government Council of Economic Advisors released a report that estimates the bipartisan agreement reached this week can save 300,000 American jobs. Oh, okay. So he doesn't say he's in the Senate force, but backwards he says, Senate, they're all first-year losers. That is so clear. I would have gotten that one. You didn't have to prompt me. I, I could have. Oh, sorry, yeah. yeah. Right, I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm so used to doing that. I got, I got to stop doing that. It's just a habit. So, but you do raise an interesting point. These reversals are so clear, and I have got 30 years of them on my computer. I mean, I I've just been waiting, waiting for someone to wake up one day and realise, gee whiz, we've got this amazing resource sitting down there in Adelaide, Australia. We need to tap into it. So, uh, so, and on that note, I've got some more news, some good news for those who've been waiting for the Reverse Speaks documentary. It is only just around the corner. We've had some movement on that front that just happened yesterday. Um, uh, A TV I'm, documentary. Uh, well, that's yes. Uh, uh, we haven't had a sold to a network yet, but all the footage has been shot, and the editing process is going to start in about four weeks. So we'll have a completed documentary ready to go in about three months, I would say. Fantastic. So, yep, yep. And then we start shopping it around. But uh, for those of you who've been waiting for the documentary, we're getting very, very close. So good news all the way around. And I'll be meeting with the production people in when I'm in L.A. So uh, to get that kicked off, finally. Fantastic. David John Oates, my guest. And again, he's coming to Toronto Saturday, October the 26th at the Greek Metamorphosis Orthodox Church, 40 Donlins Avenue from 2 to 4 p.m. There'll be a – this is a free event – and there'll be a workshop on reverse speech, which will be run by Christian D. Cadure from Reverse Speech Radio. That's happening, same location, 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. I'll be there. Come on down, say hello. Again, a free event, Saturday, October 26th, 40 Donlins Avenue, Metamorphosis Greek Orthodox Church, just steps from the Donlins subway station. Um, what else do you have for us? Do you have another reversal? Uh, 
uh, yeah, let's pull one up real quick here, shall we? Uh, here, uh, I'm trying to think of one I haven't played you. Here, here let's see if you can get this one. This is a nice easy one. This is uh, Anna Nicole Smith, the late Anna Nicole Smith, drunk at the Oscars. And if I ever record an album, I want this guy to produce my make me beautiful duets. As you can hear, she's obviously oh, drunk. Yeah. She's staggering her over the stage and she says this backwards. See if you can get this. What'd you get there? The first word I got was naked. Oh, interesting. Okay, I got it down as make you seasick. I'll play it again. Make you seasick. Oh, yeah, yeah, seasick. Make yeah. you seasick. <laughs> okay, yeah, make yeah. you seasick. Right, <laughs> yes. What does that mean? What is she on about? Well, oh, well, looking at looking at her on stage, you could almost be seasick. Oh, I see. <laughs> wobble, you know, and she's drooling, so she's slurring her words oh. and the alcohol making her all crazy. Poor thing. See? What a tragic figure. Yeah, she really was. Yeah, yeah, and um, yeah, she tragically. Recently, uh, on Reverse Speech Radio, you guys did an episode on John Wayne Gacy. Oh, yes, indeed. Tell me about that. What did you discover? Yeah, oh, truly evil man. Uh, (laughs) Of course, you don't need reversal to to say that. Um, um, Let me see if I can pull some of those up real quick. Uh, uh, I'm sure I've got them. Um, Okay, so let's see if I can. Okay, here's one. um, Here's one that's a basic confession. That I'm I'm a homosexual thrill killer. That I stroll down the street and stalk young boys. And got murdered. Did did they die? Murdered. Did they die? Murdered. Did they die? Yeah. Murdered. Did they die? Yeah. So you know he's not talking about going down the supermarket to uh, to buy some bread. <laughs> no. No. And and I need to stress that that's one of the things I wanted to get across in this uh, in the interview today was the principle of complementarity, and there's always this contextual relationship between the forwards and the reverse right. dialogue. Right, every time, which again is further evidence that yep. this is actual. You know, this is the, this is real. This is going on. Right, right. He's exactly right. Uh, that's probably the first thing that convinced me back in '87 when I originally wrote the theory of reverse speech. It's, it's the first thing that really convinced me that that Greg and I were onto something was there was always this revert, contextual relationship. And the very first reversal I ever heard on speech was I ran it backwards. I didn't know what was on the forwards, and I heard the two words spacewalk. I thought, gee, what's that? And I played it forward to hear Neil Armstrong walking on the moon, and I go, Wow. Wow. It, was, it just totally blew me away and uh, found that in 87. So, um, yep, complementarity, that's the secret. All right, David, uh, I look forward to seeing you Saturday, October 26th at the yep. free reverse speech event. And, uh, oh, in the meantime, we should also point people uh, towards the reverse speech radio podcast. New episodes every Thursday, and they can go to reversespeech.ca for more information or reverse speech 
radio.libson.com. Yes, indeed. And listen to the show. You one comes out every week. So All right, David. Have a great flight. We'll see you soon. Thanks, Richard. Okay, see you soon. Stay tuned. The Psychic Adventures of Natasha Rosewood is next. Fasten your seatbelt and put your tray in the upright position. You're about to leave everything you know behind on The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. After surviving life in her large, chaotic family in Oxfordshire, England, and as a reincarnation of a gypsy, Natasha Rosewood found her niche as a flight attendant and while traveling extensively also learned palmistry. The study of metaphysics would become her passion. While living in Switzerland, Norway, Germany, and Libya, she acquired the languages of those countries as well as learning basic Italian and Spanish before immigrating to British Columbia. Since 1995, Natasha finally surrendered to her fate as a full-time psychic. She's evolved from palm reader to psychic coach, facilitating spiritual healing and psychic development, offering corporate and private workshops, and writing her three books and columns, as well as her other services, where she offers private phone or online consultations to people groups around the world. She's also a past life regression therapist and a ghostbuster. Natasha Rosewood, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? Well, I'm pretty well, Richard. Thank you very much. I'm very excited to be speaking with you tonight. So, ple- so thank you for having me on. Ah, my pleasure. I love the title of, uh, well, two of your books, Arg. I think I'm psychic and you can be too. That Arg part of the title, you know, that's something, you know, one might say when you discover you're sick, like, Arg, I think I have chicken pox. Uh, it doesn't sound like something you would have chosen, uh, being psychic was something you chose for yourself. No, it really wasn't. And the book is about my reluctant psychic psychic awakening. And there was a bit of a story to that, Richard, when I'd been in Canada about six months and I was going to see psychics here. And they all said, oh, you're so psychic. And I said, don't tell me that. You know, I, I loved everything metaphysical. I was so curious, but I didn't want to be called a psychic. And I know I'm not alone in that. So when my sister-in-law called me up and she confirmed that this reading I had done had come true in every little sense of the word, I went, ah, I think I'm psychic. So that's where this title came ah, from. <laughs> so, so I mean, you just didn't do like a, a reading and found that, that you had this ability, I'm, I'm, I'm guessing. I mean, how did your psychic abilities first start to manifest and when? Well, I think it starts with curiosity and fascination. And I would, I can remember being 10, 11, 12 years old and really wanting to figure out what made people tick. And then when I got into my teens and I grew up in the UK and we grew up in a culture of ghost stories and, um, everything's woo woo. And so I was always fascinated by the invisible. And then when I got to my late teens, I started studying astrology, the I Ching, numerology. And I think I was trying trying to find which uh, path I was going to pursue. And I found this book on palmistry actually when I was 22, just as I started my flying career. And I didn't think I was psychic at all. I just thought um, I was picking stuff picking up information from the lines on people's hands and I would grab people and willing volunteers and say, listen, I don't know what I'm doing. So don't take you seriously. And I would start, 
reading what I thought I was getting the information from the lines and people were just shocked at what I could sense and feel. And I went, wow, you mean I'm right? And they went, oh my God, yes. So that kind of spooked me. And it took me another eight years before I came to Canada, before I really started to think, you know what, I think I've got something here. And it just got stronger and stronger and stronger. The more I used it, the stronger it got. Now, had you started to realize some of those psychic abilities while you were working as a flight attendant? I think I was very fascinated. We would make regular visits to psychics, you know, girls who fly in our 20s. We're wondering when our Mr. Wright's going to show up or, you know, uh, where we're going to move or what's going to happen. And I think I started to feel like there was something going on for me there. I was definitely very fascinated. Um, People would say to me, I was a witch and a catalyst. I would make things happen. I would put couples together or find people jobs, and I just know instinctively what was going to happen. But I would not have called myself a psychic at that time. It took me a very long, um, quite a few years to be able to say, yes, I am psychic. So there were inklings of it, um, but I was in denial. (laughs) Hmm. I'm just, I'm wondering, you know, imagining rather what would happen when a psychic flight flight attendant suddenly gets, let's say, a bad vibe when she's on board a plane. Did anything like that ever happen? Oh, well, there were bad vibes about passengers. And I used to go in for flights and I worked for an airline that really worked us very, very hard. And I'd be exhausted and I'd be thinking, oh, no, I think something's going to happen on the flight tonight. And I'm really not up for it. But I think I was confusing at that time my fatigue with my intuition. And so now I actually teach people how to distinguish between fear and intuition or fatigue and intuition because people sometimes get those emotions mixed up with what they're sensing. Um, But I didn't – there was one flight where I was called out for – we were all called out on this – uh, November evening, and I hate to say it, but it was a dark and stormy night. Of course. And, and I never felt good when we were all called out. It felt like, ooh, I don't like the feeling of this. And sure enough, it was a flight from Gatwick into Stuttgart, which is about two and a half hour flight on a very old plane called a Comet. And um, we landed, but then the there was no reverse thrust and the aircraft went barreling down the runway and we all went into a brace position thinking that maybe we were going to crash into another aircraft or something and then suddenly all the brakes came on last minute turned out that the rudder on the back of the plane the tailplane which was attached to the main fuselage by three metal struts the bottom sorry the top two ones had become had broken so the tailplane, the rudder of the plane, was hanging off just by this one thin strut. And I don't know how we landed and how we survived. Thank God there were no crosswinds that night. But I was right to have that feeling of like dread because um, one more flight or, you know, crosswinds of even 60 miles an hour could have put us into a spin and we it would not have been a good ending to that story. I wouldn't be telling it to you right now. No, no. <laughs> My word. Yeah. Uh, um, you mentioned a couple of things I want to just circle back on. One was the difference between f- uh, exhaustion, fear, and intuition. Just yes. break that down a little bit for me because, I mean, I don't 
I don't tend to think of exhaustion as sort of as an emotion. So how can exhaustion ever be confused with intuition? Well, I speak from experience because when I was flying, I actually went through a bout of nervous exhaustion, which I write about in my book. And it started out with physical exhaustion. And because I had no strength, it also became um, my ne- my nerves were very, my emotions were very battered from stuff I was going through in my private life. And then I was being overworked um, as a flight attendant. I speak five languages and they, they made me work summer and winter kind of nonstop. And I was, it was a compilation. It was a compounding of all those um, events for me. And then, I would, when I was in that state of exhaustion, I became depressed because I think I was angry about some things that had gone on and I wasn't expressing them. I became anxious and I would confuse my anxiety and sense of dread with, oh my God, something bad's going to happen. And it was really my anxiety and not anything intuitive that I was feeling. So I think a lot of us, when we're physically exhausted or uh, we're we're all very overwhelmed right now, I think, by technology and the the stress to be on everything at, at all times. Um, I think there's a lot of anxiety around. I certainly notice it with my clients, and my clients will often say, oh, I feel this sense of dread, and I think something really bad's going to happen. And I say, well, let's separate that, what's happening in your life that's giving you the potential anxiety, and separate it from the intu- what might be an intuitive feeling. So it's to really define where that sense of dread is coming from, that anxiety is coming from. Ah, okay. Does that make sense? Yeah, yes, it does. It does. Okay. Okay. Good. Now, and and I think oh, yeah. you, you go ahead. No, sorry. no, no. You 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 keep going. You're on a roll here. I love it. Okay, because I think what's going on right now with mental health and. Um, you know, the shootings in the U.S. and we've got our own events happening in Canada as well. It's not exclusive to the U.S. by any stretch of the imagination. I think there's my sense of what's going on in the world. There's this kind of massive tension that's happening and it's, it's compounded, I think, by technology, by, um, social media and having to live up to something. Um, kids are worried about the future of the environment. Um, you know, there's, there's the very real, real fears going on. So again, all our feelings and our emotions are being kind of convoluted at the same time. I'm sure you're aware of this, Richard, the electromagnetic energy on the planet is increasing. It's rising of the, on the earth and uh, us humans are also, I think we've doubled our electromagnetic energy in the last 15 years. And as you know, the suicide rate has increased by 33% in the last, I think, 19 years. And so all this stuff is coming together and it's just pushing us and pushing us and pushing us until we're confusing. We might be increasing our intuition due to the rise in electromagnetic energy, it's actually playing with our brainwaves and waking us up. But at the same time, if you've got that sense of things aren't right or think the, the world is going to end next week or I might get shot if I go to the supermarket, you know, it, it's, it's going to be a very confusing time for a lot of people. And if you're not on solid ground in your own mental health, I can see how this is really compounding for people. 
Oh, yeah, we are definitely living in an age of anxiety. Uh, yes. Natasha Rosewood is my guest. We'll come back and uh, we'll talk about adventures in Libya, among other things. <laughs> back with yes. more. Back with more in a moment. Stay with us. The world is being pulled over your eyes. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrant from Zoomer Radio. To reach Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. We're back with Natasha Rosewood. So what were you doing in Libya? <laughs> Good question, Richard. Uh, a lot of my family thought I had a, a suicide uh, death wish. Um, but what happened in the UK in the early 80s was a recession. And the airline I was flying for at that time, Freddie Laker, he was an amazing pioneer. And actually, some major airlines conspired to make him go bankrupt. So we did. And so there was a glut of um, aircrew living in the south of England, Sussex. And so a lot of us were just taking any flying jobs that were going in other countries. And the ex-chief stewardess of Laker called me and said, hey, would you like to go to, first she offered me Lagos. And at that time I did have a job and I said, thanks, but no thanks. And then I called her back the next week because the job I had went south. And so she said, well, I've got a job in Libya. How do you feel about that? And I, funny enough, I just read a large article on Libya about Gaddafi and how he had come to power and really actually brought a lot of wealth to the country. And he had given every family at that time a house, a car, he'd built schools. So for quite a while in that country, he was a hero. So I went out there just after that time and he was starting it then in early, uh, sorry, November of 1982, I think, to lose some popularity. Right, right. And um, so what what happened while you were there? Okay, <laughs> yes. So, uh, gosh, it's another book, really. But um, so we, there were 20 of us. And the idea was that we were flying passengers from Tripoli in Libya. So we were based in a hotel in Tripoli. And we were flying them to Saudi Arabia, to um, Jidda. Uh, and these passengers then bust up from Jeddah to Mecca for their Hajj pilgrimage. And then we would fly also to pick them up. So we were like basically a bus service uh, between Tripoli and Saudi Arabia. We also went into other countries uh, in, in Europe, Greece, Prague. Uh, we landed in Damascus, places like that. And uh, then we would fly back into Tripoli. And it, to say it was an adventure is really putting it mildly. It was very interesting for me from a spiritual perspective because um, I was escaping a psycho mother at that time. And I felt a huge relief that she could not contact me. People could not phone into the country. And it was very difficult to get a call out of the country. So we were kind of isolated there. But for me, that gave me a great sense of peace. And I have to say, it changed me drastically because we were in a culture where we had no control. We had nobody taking care of us, really. Uh, we were used to having flight deck, you know, when we flew to LA or New York or Miami, Barbados, to kind of take care of us. But we were kind of 20 women on our own. And that was 
there were some very terrifying moments, but there were some really wonderful moments as well because I had to, and we all had to surrender. We absolutely had to surrender to what was going on at the time. And those women that didn't, uh, 10 of us were asked to stay an extra month and I was one of the ones asked to stay. The other 10 were having difficulty in handling the environment. So it was a good thing they went back to the UK and, mm. and we stayed. And we, uh, the other flight deck in Libya that we met, the Irish Aer Lingus pilots who were wonderful, they came up with a saying which they called IBM and it stands for Inshallah Bukra Malish. And in Arabic, Inshallah means tomorrow. Bukra, sorry, Inshallah means leave it up to Allah or God. Bukra means tomorrow and Malish means it doesn't matter anyway. Hmm. So you develop this philosophy, and I have to say that was one of the. I've traveled a lot and I've lived in you know four or five other countries for a while. That was one of the most um, enlightening experiences for me. Can and you, uh, could you very quickly share one of the what you described as is a terrifying moment? Oh yes, well there were a few of those. <laughs> where do I begin? Um, there was one time where. Um, I was with a girlfriend and she uh, had befriended uh, an Irish civil engineer and he spoke very good Arabic, German, and obviously English. I speak fluent German and I befriended his uh, colleague who didn't speak any English, so he was very happy to meet me and be able to talk to somebody apart from his colleague in German. So we had um, a dinner I cooked to dinner one night in, uh, I'll just call him David's apartment. And uh, we were sitting around. We'd finished eating. You're not allowed to drink in Libya, of course, because it's uh, a Muslim country. And there was a knock at the door. And uh, these two um, Libyans came in. And they were with us for about three hours. And we didn't know what was going to happen to us at the end of it. So it was a little scary. I'm just going to, I'm going to jump in here. Pardon the yes. interruption. We'll leave this as a cliffhanger. We'll, okay. uh, we'll come back on the other side and find out what happened. Natasha Rosewood, my guest, psychic, medium, ghostbuster, past life regression therapist. We'll talk more in a moment. Stay with us. Okay. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.